So let's head into our message today. You know, I was reading online today, or not today, that would be awkward if I just put the sermon together today. Um, I didn't do that. Uh, Sometimes I want to do that, but I did not do that. Uh, I was reading uh, this week that in the polls today, in statistics, that 75% of Americans consider themselves to be a Christian. 75% of Americans consider themselves Christians. And, And maybe that's a surprising number to you. Maybe you're like, well, that feels about right. But it is surprising in lots of different ways. Surprising when you consider the tense social-political environment that we find ourselves in today, where secular culture and orthodox Christianity seem opposed to one another. A a reality in which both sides kind of feel demeaned and oppressed by the other side. And if it is true that 75% of Americans are Christians, then how do we account for a culture that seemingly can't agree on anything? We can't even agree that Rocky IV is the best of all the Rocky movies. Consider this, though. I mean, if you had 75% of alignment, you would think there would be more harmony, more compatibility. If you were in business and you were making a decision and 75% of the people in your office agreed with the decision, you would say that you're walking in health. You actually could go to college and earn a degree in something like even structural engineering if you maintained a 70%, 75% average throughout your classes. As I was told in college by some other students, hey, Steve, C's get degrees. I'm not saying that it's great, uh, not a great life lesson, but it's truthful in some ways. I'm not asking anybody to live to that standard. And so what's going on? What is going on? that 75% of people say that they're Christians, but there is yet so much uneasiness in our times. Well, we could either consider that maybe these statistics are wrong, that it isn't 75%, these polls are wrong, but that would be hard to argue against. There are multiple reports that kind of communicate the same thing. Or, Or maybe we could say that there is a great deal of confusion on what the term Christian means. If you were to Google, on the Google, as some grandparents might say, as what the word Christian means, what it means to be a Christian, or this term Christian, you would find 4.65 billion web pages. And of those web pages, there is a diversity in thought about what this term Christianity means. Now, I have not gone through those 4.65 billion web pages. I'm in 4.25 billion right now. I've got about another 4 million to go through this week. No, I have not. But I've gone through enough to know that there is a great diversity in thought about what the term Christian means. And if you would go up to 100 people and ask them the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? You most likely would get 100 different answers. And so all that to say that there is a great deal of confusion on what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot of chatter around it, but very little understanding. And so what we want to focus on in our time today is what it means to actually be a Christian and to live as a Christian. I mean, does Christian, being a Christian simply mean that you have certain political alignments? Does it mean that you believe that there's a life after this one? Does it simply mean that you promote and pursue social justice? What is at the core of Christianity? And even that question, what's at the core, can cause disagreement because that would be to assume that there is a core, 
that there is some undeniable truth that is solid about the idea of Christians because culturally we value the thought of inclusion. We value this thought of inclusion which makes giving a clear response to what it means to be a Christian so difficult because any answer that might exclude will be met with disagreement and even condemnation. Because of all, above all else, isn't Christianity inclusive? And so our desire for inclusion for everyone causes vagueness in answering what it means to be a Christian. It causes vagueness in even what it, who Jesus was. Vagueness in what Jesus did. Was he just a great moral teacher? Did he even exist? And all of this vagary leads us to a place where we believe in general that religion is just confusion, and the only way that we can actually really understand it is to look at it through the lens of self. That with all of this confusion, I am the one that's left to navigate what is fundamentally right and wrong for me by what seems right and feels good to me. It is up to the individual to find their perfect fit of what's uniquely and individually designed for them personally. And besides, disagreements over such things don't really matter, do they? I mean, it doesn't really matter or make a difference what we precisely believe, does it? I mean, the great philosopher George Costanza once said, it's not a lie if you believe it, Jerry. It is with this idea that we come to our text today in 1 John. It's always helpful that we read scripture together, read our text together. And so we'll have this on the screen. You're welcome to join us with your scripture journals or your Bible itself, but it's good that we get our own eyes on the text. And so let's approach this text and see if John might bring some clarity to these issues today. And this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, we often say like father, like son, or we'll say like, like mother, like daughter. It's an undeniable reality that our children most often follow in our footsteps in one way or another. One of my best friends is my neighbor, and one of the things I love to do is to, to be in my yard and look over at his yard, and if he's mowing, his little son gets his own little push toy mower out and for hours just follows his dad in the same pattern around the yard. He just wants to be like his daddy. There is this undeniable thing in us that wants to be like our parents, but it's not only in what we do or how we act, but children are often striking resemblances of their parents. It might be said of you that she is a spitting image of her mother, which I don't even know. Why do we say spitting image? What does that mean? Did somebody just hawk a loogie and say, oh, it looks like that? I don't, these words confuse me. I remember when Camille was born, we 
took her to Cincinnati, where a lot of my wife's family is from, and, and they, the ants just gathered around Camille. There's like eight of them, and they just ooed over her, and they just began this conversation of like, who does she look like? Because that's an important conversation to have. Who does she look like? And it was like, oh, she looks like this person, or she looks like, oh, they have, she has their nose or, or their eyes. Do you never, do you know who was never mentioned once as being somewhat close to resemblance to her? Her father. Like, never once was I, oh, she might have her daddy's nose. Now, I was frustrated over that. I've repented of my frustration of that. And I've actually come to appreciate the fact that she doesn't look exactly like me. But there is resemblance, as there is in any and every family. And what John draws our attention to in this last chapter is this very same premise. That for those who trust in God, those who follow God, there should be an increasing resemblance to our Father in heaven. That there should be increasingly present attributes of our God in our lives. Birthmarks, you could say. Birthmarks that revolve around right belief, how we live, and how we love. There are some central tenets of belief and action that are true and should be true of all of those who profess in the name of Jesus Christ because the fact the Holy Spirit of God lives amongst us. And so in these short five verses, John compels to us some very striking identifiable traits, marks, or evidences of those who confess Christ. Evidences that convey right belief, right obedience, and right love. And so here's what John writes about in this fifth chapter, six identifying traits of a Christian. And now, look, I know that there's been some trouble in this series of writing down, I'm, I'm giving you all this good nuggets, right, and you're trying to write it all down, so uh, we're, we're going to try to get through this, but we've made available to you all the things that I put up on the screen here, and all the scriptures are at our information desk if you miss something and want to write it down. Six identifying traits of a Christian. Uh, number one is this, is that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that may seem standard to you, but there are some that claim to be a Christian that don't believe Jesus actually saves, that he's actually the Messiah, came here to rescue us. Number two is this, is that we have been born of God. And that's such an abstract phrase that we need to spend some time today breaking down what that means. And we'll do that here in a little bit, but we, that is a trait that we've been born of God, and we can see that rightly in people's lives. Number three is that we love the Father and His family. We've walked greatly into that kind of reality where we, as Christians, because of God's love in us, should love our brothers and sisters because we understand who we are and who God is. It's a positional thing. And number four is that we obey his commands. And this is an, a difficult trait to define. And we're going to spend some time talking about God's commands today. Number five is that we've overcome the world. And, and what does scripture say? We overcome the world because of our faith. We, we said last week that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so overcoming involves our faith. It becomes about living through Christ, not for God, but living through the very Spirit of God. That is how we overcome the world. And number six, and lastly, is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this can seem, I mean, that makes it contradictory, or contradictory. Like, if you believe the Messiah, you believe in the Son of God. That's not always true. I mean, 
the Israelites were looking for a political savior in the Messiah. They weren't necessarily looking for God's son who brought redemption to the world. And so it's right that we believe he's Messiah, but also that he's God's very own son. And so some of these traits that we talk about are very self-explanatory. We're not going to spend a lot of time explaining them or, or going through them. We've gone through several of them already in this letter. Today we're going to spend our time in just two areas and gloss over the rest if you give me permission to do that. Today we're going to touch on what it means to be born of God, but mostly we're going to focus our attention on answering two questions that revolve around obeying God's commands. And those two questions are, are these. Why is it the love of God is rooted in keeping his commandments? And an increasingly difficult question to answer is which ones? And the second question is, is how can I be commanded and not burdened? Because that seems to be opposite. If somebody commands you to do something, that almost feels like a burden. But John says that our, his commandments aren't burdensome. And so we're going to walk into those today. You know, this phrase that John uses, born of God, is not something that he has made up. It mirrors what Jesus spoke about in the Gospel of John in chapter 3 when he meets a man named Nicodemus a religious ruler of the day, he talks to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. And we'll read this interaction together here in our time in John 3. This is what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus would have the same reaction that we would have if somebody came up to you without context and saying, hey, you've got to be born again. We would say, that's gross. Go in my mother's womb again? No, what were you talking about? What Jesus and John are compelling here is not an actual physical birth, but it's a spiritual birth, a spiritual rebirth. And it's something that you can't do yourself, but something that is only seen in you by its effect. Just like you didn't play any part in your physical birth from your mother, you don't play any part in your spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. And John, or Jesus displays this by talking about the wind. Why is, does Jesus relate to the wind to being born of God. Well, the word for wind in Greek is pneuma, and it's the same word for spirit. When the wind blows, we can't see it, but we see everywhere it's been. You can see trees' leaves move. You can see plants bend. You can feel it upon your face. You cannot see it, but you know that it's been there. No one can catch it or restrain it. It's just there, and the same is true for the spirit. Spiritual birth is an act of the Holy Spirit. He's invisible, yet everywhere he moves, change follows. Our words, our arguments, our actions do not have the power 
to make somebody born of God. Only the Holy Spirit of God can transform a repentant and broken heart who understands their need for grace. Being born of God signifies that there is a God-compelled desire to surrender our lives and to live through Christ, to desire to be like the one who redeemed us and gave us life, a desire that leads us to, to, to ditch and leave behind our old lives in their patterns of sin and death in the flesh and pursue by the Spirit a life the desires, the things of God. And so Jesus and John say that you must be born new, born of God, something that we can't do, but we can see it. We can see it in our love for God. We can see it in our love for one another. We can see it in our desires to pursue after him. It's not always perfect, rarely ever is, but it's present, constantly moving us towards God's heart, which John compels as greater evidence that somebody is actually a Christian, that they obey God's command and heart. This isn't something that John has just brought up here in chapter 5. This is something that John has spoken about all the time in this letter. If we go back to John 2, 1 John 2, he says this, by this we've known that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and, and he is not in him. In the first John 3, he says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in them. In chapter 5, he talks about love being equated with keeping God's commands. And he's not making this stuff up on the spur of the moment as he's writing this letter. He's compelling simple truths that came from Jesus. Because Jesus in John 14 says that if you love me, you will keep my commands. To obey a commandment implies that we live to a set of standards. A set of standards or laws that are particular to a group of people, that we uphold them and we live them out in a way that I can associate or disassociate somebody to a group, a person, simply by how they live. I don't need much evidence to know if somebody's Amish, right? I don't need much proof to understand if you're from Europe or America because you drive on the right side of the road. I don't need much evidence to know that you're from the Midwest because you just baked a batch of scotcheroos for your euchre tournament. And so there are some identifiable marks that are true of anyone who belongs to something or someone. And John says that God's commands, following them, identifies those who call themselves Christians. But what is seemingly different about this type of obedience or following God's commands is that it's not rooted in acceptance or fear, but rather out of love. Love that produces joyful obedience to God's word. Love that demands duty because fear could never produce in us what love could. I mean, when you think about our children, they will obey more richly and profoundly long-term, lifelong, out of our love for them than they will out of our fear created in them. Fear attacks an action. It attacks the fruit. Love compels new desires. Love gets behind the fruit to the root. 
And this is what John is talking about. Because we are born of God, the Spirit begins to pull us towards His desires and His commands because we love Him in the same way that we love our children. His love puts a demand on us that we would walk inside of certain boundaries, certain precepts, to live a certain way that isn't about control or manipulation, but rather it's motivated by what's best for God, His creation, and His people. It's for our own joy and flourishing to walk in the commands of God. In the same way, we love our kids enough to want something better for them. We love them enough to protect them. You know, when my two-year-old is around the pool, she always wears floaties. And you wouldn't consider me harsh or unloving to put that kind of demand on her. I put it on her because I know that without them, she could die. You might say that that is a very loving thing to do, that I love my child very much. And in the same way, God's love is so concerned about his creation, about his people's welfare, that he's commanded boundaries for us to live inside of, for our own joy. I like to consider it this way, like love does not forget God's commands, and God's commands do not forget love. Love always has to consider what God desires, and what God desires is always motivated out of love for his people. God wouldn't be loving if he didn't call us upwards towards what is best for his glory and for our joy. His love produces a distinctive life for our own strengthening and our own protection, and these commands are an outpouring of his love for us. And this is why John says that these commands aren't a burden. They're not a burden because they're produced out of our love for God, compelled because of what God has done for us. His commandments aren't there to hinder us, but protect and strengthen us. What continues, unfortunately, to increasingly divide the flock of God is the understanding of what commands that we should follow. It's creating a vast difference in what people believe and what they think about the Christian faith, and we're going to spend kind of the rest of our time speaking on this issue. There is a great debate, even in this small community, and amongst all believers, that generates all sorts of different practices and truths. There are Christians who condemn other Christians because they follow some of God's commandments, but not all of them. There is a secular culture that sees Christians as inconsistent because they follow some of the things that are commanded in the Bible, but not all of it. Saying that they're hypocritical because they condemn certain behaviors, but say other commands are no longer necessary to abide by. For instance, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it says that we shouldn't eat shellfish. Yet, unless you don't like shellfish, none of us feel condemned eating a lobster. I am going to Boston tomorrow, and I will make it a goal to find the best lobster roll while I'm there, and I will not feel condemned by God. Why is that? How can I walk in that if it's commanded by God? Well, this is a very broad topic. And I would be foolish to think that I can cover all of it in our time together. So I would just say that we're going to try to get a baseline understanding of what commands we are to follow 
And I would just recommend to you uh, reading from authors like D.A. Carson or Kevin DeYoung. A guy named Michael Winger has some great YouTube videos about this subject. And so which commands is John suggesting that we follow out of love? Is it the whole Old Testament Mosaic law? Is it just the Ten Commandments? Is it just what Jesus said to love God most and love others best? Is it just anything that Jesus said? And so what I'll continue today is John's words here about commandments are about us following the moral laws of God that we find in the Old Testament that are continued in the New Testament. The moral law of God that is echoed by Jesus in the New Testament, we're going to define that a little bit. We're going to first read this verse out of Matthew 5 to understand how Jesus interacts with the law. This is a hotly debated verse in some of uh, obedience circles when people are trying to contend which commands were to follow. This is what it says. Jesus is saying these words, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus' aim was not to abolish or change the law, that wasn't his aim. Remember, God's law is holy. It's perfect. It's reverent. It's without blemish. It's how we could live well in this earth. It's perfect without flaw. It reveals God's holiness. We should revere it. And Jesus isn't about to redefine it. He's about to fulfill it, to deal with it once and for all. And that's exactly what he did on the cross when he said, it is finished. It was accomplished. And Paul writes about this glorious reality, God redeeming us and saving us from the law, fulfilling the law in Romans 8. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son into the likeness of, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that in our flesh, we could never attain the kind of righteous requirement that the law demanded of us. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could fulfill that law. And in that law, there are three different sort of categories of laws that Jesus fulfilled. There are 613 different Mosaic laws that we find in the Old Testament. And some people would contend to you that we need to follow all 613. The Jewish people aimed to follow all 613 imperfectly. And those 613 are divided into three types. There are laws that are about civil. Code. There are civil laws. There are laws that are ceremonial in nature ceremonial laws, and then there are moral laws. And we're going to walk through those today in our time together. There's a pastor in the D.C. area named J.D. Greer who writes uh, specifically and really well done about these three different types of laws, and so we'll walk into his wisdom a bit today. He says this, that the civil laws, for instance, those civil codes were set up so the the nation of Israel could flourish on earth. Jesus came out of that nation, but Jesus has started his own nation, a new Israel, a spiritual Israel, his 
church. It is his church. We are no longer bound to the civil codes that we find in Deuteronomy or Leviticus because God does not have nation states on earth anymore. God, his people, live in all nations powered by the Holy Spirit. The very temple that the Jewish structure worship was destroyed. The presence of God himself and the presence of God himself lives in temples today. And those temples are you and I, the very presence the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need to abide by these civil code. We can look wisely to them for some practices in our social, political environments like health, public health, and caring for the poor, etc., etc. But these specific rules were all fulfilled in Jesus and are no longer a requirement. It is not a requirement that you shouldn't eat shellfish. It is not a requirement that you take your excrement outside of a camp with a certain amount of steps and a certain amount of distance. Those were set up there for city-states, nation-states on earth. The second is the ceremonial laws. And these laws illustrate God's holiness and his unholiness and what God would do about it. And so there was this sacrificial system that was made that when you sinned, you could earn right standing in front of God by sacrificing certain objects, certain animals, certain ways, going to certain high priest, things like that. That was there to ingrain in the Israelites' mind the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. It was there for us to recognize that there is a gap between us and God and just how costly it would be to bridge that gap. But when we read in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews shows us that all of those sacrifices were fulfilled in the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus. If we accept Jesus in our life, we accept the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need any lesser sacrifices. It actually would be offensive to go back to lesser sacrifices because you would say that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient and so these types of ceremonial laws about what you should sacrifice, washing, they're no longer necessary. Jesus fulfilled them. He is, as the author of Hebrews writes, the great high priest. He is a new covenant. And then there's the moral law, which are fulfilled in Jesus as well. He kept them perfectly every second of every minute of every day that he ever lived in his entire life. But unlike the civil and ceremonial laws that are bound to time, these moral laws reflect God's assessment of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. They reflect his very character. And since God's character doesn't change, neither does his viewpoint on morality. Morality has never changed in God. In fact, if we listen to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus reaffirms the moral law. Not only does he reaffirm it, sometimes he intensifies them. Where he says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And so to love Jesus is to follow what he loved, including the moral laws that we see present in the New Testament. Now, even though we defend the moral law in the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that Jesus still fulfilled that law. Christians are not under the obligation to keep the moral law as a way of earning their way to God. That's not what we're saying. Instead, we are changed by the presence of God's Spirit 
in us to desire to keep God's law. Because God isn't after just some obedience that's about fear. He's after a whole new kind of obedience, an obedience that comes from love and delight in God. And so Christians, we keep these moral commands not because it's the law or it's a list, but because we love God and want to be like him and understand that he wants our flourishing. It's produced from love. That's why it's not burdensome. If we were to follow the 613 laws in our flesh, that would be burdensome. And John would be inaccurate. John is talking about the moral law that comes from our hearts. And so here's what we can say. These commands are about morality. What John is talking about, he's about compelling God's character, his sense of justice and right and wrong and good and evil through us. And they ultimately can be boiled down into two commandments. That we love God with our whole heart, strength, and mind. And we love neighbor as self. All the law and the prophets are built upon those two things. All of the Ten Commandments, and I'll go ahead and put the Ten Commandments, every one of those commands is rooted in either love of God or love of neighbor. This is a good template for us to live by. Jesus reaffirms nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. He doesn't talk about keeping the day, the Sabbath day. I can't say that I have a complete theology on why he left that out. Some way down the line, we'll teach on that. Jesus reaffirms these things, but listen, this is a guideline, but we're not limited to these things. When we love God with our whole hearts, we grow in affection for him, we read his word, we want relationship with him, we grow to love the things that God loves. And we grow to love neighbors because God loves neighbor. And the Holy Spirit works in us, so this is a great guideline, but it's not everything. And if my neighbor is sick, there's no commandment here that says I should feed my neighbor. But there's something that comes out of the desire in my heart because I love Jesus and I love my neighbor that I want to take care of my neighbor. It is about loving God and loving neighbor. It is about upholding God's design and God's creation. It's not about an effort to live perfectly by a standard of rules. It's about leaning in to the Holy Spirit who's creating new desires in you. And so, just to conclude today, it, it matters greatly what we believe. It matters greatly what we do. There is a core, authentic way that does matter in belief. And John has laid it out here in 1 John chapter 5. There's not a vagueness when it comes to Christianity. Certainly, there are gifts and talents that are unique to us that God uses in certain ways. But there should be traits that are identifiable in Christians because of the Holy Spirit of God that can be seen whether you're in Ecuador or Europe or Indiana. There should be things that are common of God's family. And the bottom line reason that they are not present it's because we still refuse to submit to God's truth and word. We struggle with giving over control to a loving God because we still at times think that we know best. 
And that is the root of vagueness in Christianity. And so if anything happens today with John's words here, I would pray that they would press on your heart and that you would pray earnestly in the spirit that he would build within you a new desire, a new way. And that way will look like what John contends for us here today as marks of a Christian. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we're not experts on your law. Um, we're not experts on your commands. We just, we love you. And we know that you love us immensely. And so God, we pray today that you would put it on our hearts in a way that we would desire to walk in your flourishing commands for our joy and for your glory. God, help us to not see commandments as burdensome. But help us to see you as our loving parent who wants us to walk in safety, flourishing, to bring you greater joy and bring you greater glory. So God, today we just pray that you would just put a passion in our hearts to shed our worldly knowledge and submit to your truth that we find here in John's letter. And so God, we thank you for the word and how it convicts and pushes on our hearts. We know that it is not without effect that your word goes out, but it changed us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.